Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. You must listen to the open loops, a theme park for absurd beliefs and systems of integration between the mind and the creative spirit. Open loops. Your unconscious mind is now tuned in to your favorite late night talk show for the Shamelessly Fringe. I'm here. I didn't use the reverb. You miss it? Your unconscious mind. I, I don't know. I, I, you know what? I don't need the effects for you anymore, do I? You want them? You want the effects, man? You need your fix? Special effects audio? I should just take this thing, put it through the latest AI podcasting tool, and inhibit develop effects for me. There is no creation anymore, because somebody else is taking all the other millions of ideas that have already been created, imported them into a giant computer that is wasting away the environment, and then you, you look up things and, and, and ask it to create things, new things for you based on that pre-existing knowledge, and guess what? Now you have creativity. The mind doesn't even need to think anymore. Where does that leave us? Well, I'll tell you where it left me. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Open Loops, Conversations That Bend. I'm your host, Chief Looper, Consciousness Disruptor, Cultural Hypnotist, and All-Around Goofball, Greg Bornstein. Yes, it has been a while since I spoke to you. Uh, now, for those that aren't familiar with this show, this show is very much a forum to discuss normal and or paranormal topics if they're intellectually stimulating and mind-blowing. Consider it a theme park for your intellect and imagination. We go all over the place in this show, different topics. If it's paranormal, if it's, if it's ghosts, if it's time travel, it can be conspiracies. We go through all the kinds of sorts of things, things that 
might get me kicked off of platforms. Oh, yes, by the way, I, uh, since I've spoken to you, I mean, I did a whole episode on this, but uh, I've been kicked off. I was kicked off of Instagram, uh, and I don't believe it's related to the Facebook kickoff, uh, but for some reason they said this content was flagged. I, no, no, they didn't say this content. They just said something in my profile and in the Open Loops Facebook page was connected to the Instagram account. So for some reason, I don't know what happened. I will say last time there was some kind of propaganda from a group of people that uh, I, I think the Patriot Act was targeting. Uh, I don't want to say anything because just in case, who knows, maybe the transcript will automatically uh, I, I, I get me some wiretaps that I don't want. But the point being... Why, 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 why am I the target? Why not the flat earthers? They get through all their stuff all the time. I, I, I don't think there. I don't really think there's that much controversy on this show. Sure, sure. I, four out of five of my guests, uh, are are probably using the term the jab. That's fine. But four out of five doctors recommend camels. And I've never heard Anthony Fauci come down on Joe Camel. Is he the fifth doctor? He needs a rebrand right now. He could learn some fashion tips from that iconic Saturday morning children's cartoon. That's what Joe Camel was, right? Okay, uh, forget my millennial brainwashing from the 90s that hasn't worn off for a second. I love Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon products, slime, gack, give it to me, give it to me. Uh, what I do want to talk about is last week's episode. Now, I, I wasn't fair to this guest, and that is why the same guest from last week is on this one, Jess Marion. Let me tell you something right now. Jess is such a talented hypnotherapist, coach, NLP master practitioner, trainer. So good. She is top-notch, theintelligenthypnotist.com. Read her books. She is one of the leading foragers of, of this movement of, to, to uh, explore non-ordinary states of consciousness. Now, you would have believed that it was mainly hypnosis and NLP, if you listen to that last interview, which, by the way, was a year and a half old. Yes, I didn't put it out for a year and a half because I was saving it for some kind of, uh, I wanted to do another altar con, another week-long stint of each day uh, having a different hypnotist perspective, given that the show is so much rooted in hypnosis and in my passion around it but that just never happened and also some files on my computer got deleted and and i, I just i kept holding on to this interview with jess because i said you know what if i need a good episode to go out this is solid 
this is for people that are practitioners of, of mind technologies like hypnosis, NLP, any therapy really, or for, for people that are looking to experience change themselves. Last week's episode, 260, Trancing Fast and Slow, it, it, it is a great, 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 great summary of Jess's thinking at that time. What I didn't realize upon further digging is that Jess doesn't necessarily, she believes a lot of that stuff, but she's evolved beyond it because there are places that she's gone in her mind, in her work, in her spirit that transcend the bounds of the subconscious, unconscious, whatever you want to call it, mind. How? It's the realm of psychedelics. Now, I know we've had some people in the past talk about psychedelics on this show, but Jess's perspective, given the way she is such a master at breaking down complex fields, making it accessible for others, and then taking what she's distilled and and putting it out there in really engaging uh, courses and, and information products, books, whatnot, I, I I needed, I, I wanted to know that Jess Marion take on psychedelic healing. Uh, she she does a lot of work with sacred medicine. Uh, you'll you'll hear about that in the show. You'll hear about her understanding of the way the uh, down regulation of the default mode network. I believe that's it. I, I think I I think I've put that phrase permanently on my arm um, because it, it, it explains everything. Um, we go into it. We go into what the potentials are, what the dangers are, as well as how it all connects to her field of inquiry. This is a this is a transformative episode. This is one I'm very happy because if you're an astute listener, you'll know that one of the key things about the show is providing radically different belief systems and contrasting them against each other to stir cognitive dissonance, to get you to listen to last week's episode and this one, put them against each other and see what's different. See what's the same. Where does one idea build against the other? Where does one idea completely contradict it? This is what I find an interesting exercise because we do have views that change constantly. And look, if if John Kerry had taken the flip-flopping branding and and twisted it into a mind-bendy podcast like I do on a weekly basis, well, maybe he too would have found another reason not to be voted in as president. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Wow. Talk about, talk about the dust, uh, bringing out 2004 election references. Uh, man, swift row, row, row your boat. Uh, okay. Enough of that. Enough of that. We need to get to the present. Jess Marion. Uh, she is a wonderful, wonderful friend. She is an amazing teacher, an amazing author, you're going to like this interview. I hope you share it with your friends. For for those of you that are experiencing uh, a missing piece in your journey as a human and self-actualizing it, uh, make sure to share this podcast with your friends 
any anything you can do to to get open loops out there uh listen like subscribe if you want to rate the show and leave a review feel free to go to rate this forward slash open loops i want to hear your voice i want to hear your unique perspective as a matter of fact as you leave a review put a mushroom emoji next to it this week put a mushroom emoji next to your experience of the open loops podcast because uh who knows we that is um that is our chief demographic people that are curious enough to want a trip but might not actually do it or people that have actually done it that are beckoning you to come to the other side just marion certainly made me consider how many more realms of the mind i want to explore Get ready to explore your own. Here's Jess. Today on Open Loops. Yes, who do we have a surprise reappearance? Though actually this is this is the appearance we want. Because it's upgraded, it's improved. Uh, you probably heard me talk about it a little bit in the prelude to this, but I'm so glad she's here because I, I'm going to get into why I, I'm fascinated with this aspect of her approach. I've had people on the show before that just do psychedelics. I've had people on the show that just do hypnotists or hypnosis or NLP or whatnot. Um, but Jess Marion is here, trainer author, medicine worker. You may know her from the Intelligent Hypnotist brand. Uh, a lot of great books. I mean, I've got the, one of, uh, at least I think it was your last book, The Hypnotic Coach over uh, by my bedside right now. It's a great, it's a great book. Um, but the work you're doing these days um, in, in sacred medicine journeys and how you've evolved is is really what we're going to delve into here because I do think there's a lot of interesting ways to compare and contrast uh, trance work, hypnosis work, self development and whatnot with what's going on in sacred medicine and and, and I I love having your mind uh, it, it filter over into that realm. So we're going to get into it. Jess Marion, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me again and such an awesome introduction. I am really excited to be here to chat about stuff that I am absolutely passionate about. And also, it's really cool to get to do this again after a year and a half, two years. So I'm ready to dive in. Yes, yes. That was definitely my bad. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going to hold back. That This episode is just like such hypnosis gold that if I ever do like a... I don't know. I, I wanted to hold on. I wanted to hold on. And for those, listen, it's good stuff. If you're if you're interested in like the traditional client work that you do, I mean, there's still stuff in there. I'm like, oh no, I it's it, it's good. But what I'm curious about, Jess, is is there? Hmm. Okay. Let me let me ask you right right from uh, right from your mouth. I want to hear it. Um. What what do you, how would you say? you're different than maybe you were two years ago beyond the intelligent hypnotist that you were. How, how might you describe it simply for those of us that don't know? Sure. So yeah, well, that could be like, how long is a piece of string? Um, <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Yeah. When, when we did the interview about two years ago, uh, I was just really starting to 
uh, dive into medicine work on a, a personal uh, experiential level. I had been uh, within uh, the psychedelic circle for longer than that, but I was really just beginning to start my journey. And in terms of like how I'm different, well, all the stuff that I talked about in that previous interview, um, you know, most of it I would still say is, is fairly accurate. Um, but we do change. Nobody stays the same, especially over such a, a long period of time, just even in terms of client work. Uh, now, I still value that emphasis on precision, precision in language, precision in technique, precision in understanding of uh, the evolution of neuroscience and the use of that and the integration of that within coaching. But for a long time, my approach in coaching and, transform and transformative work had relied too heavily on uh, a scientific base. And I put scientific in quotes because anytime you try to apply the scientific method to the social sciences or to personal transformation, it doesn't quite overlap. Uh, there are uh, several reasons for that, but it is a useful metaphor and it's an effective metaphor for uh, myself at that time and also for a lot of my clients. You know, I, I get a lot of clients who are you know, kind of high powered individuals who really like that approach. So that's still a value. Uh, but I had for a long time had cut off the other side of my own personal experience and interest. When I was much younger, I was uh, very much so into uh, pretty much like all things magical and stuff that really is outside of the realm of scientific ability to measure and understand. I, I'm, I hope people try to, but I don't know if they'll ever be able to apply the scientific model to some of this kind of extra science stuff. Yes. Um, and I had put that aside partly through my own like traumas in my life, also the family environment in which I grew up, as well as my educational background. Um, going through a PhD, people don't really want to talk about seeing ghosts or dealing in magic. Yes. Uh, so that really kind of got cut off from who I was. And I really clung to a more science mindset to whatever degree that can be applied to coaching. When I started working seriously with sacred medicine, all of that stuff that I had cut off from my human experience all came flooding back in an avalanche. Um, and not just in terms of my own my interest in that area, but my own latent abilities in that area started coming back and I needed a way to understand what was happening. Um, that wasn't, oh, I must be losing my mind. <laughs> there were yes. a few times where I came very close to believing I was losing my mind, uh, but it wasn't that. It was parts of my experience, parts of my history, parts of my lineage reintegrating into myself. So now in my own uh, personal transformative journey, I I still like hypnosis a lot. Uh, hypnosis is wonderful, wonderful for like highly contextualized changes. Uh, so I like that for myself for small, highly contextualized changes, but for these bigger life questions that I have for like the existential angst and spiritual trauma and these bigger desires to, to connect to the infinite, for me, hypnosis had always fallen short. I've been a meditator since I was 12 years old. So a very, very, very long time that never quite got there, got me there. Yoga never got me there. Tai Chi never got me there but plant medicine has. Um, so I am really integrating more of those bigger questions into who I am and how I approach life and how I approach coaching. So since 
that time, I am now initiated uh, Mesa Carrier in a, an Andean healing lineage, uh, seven rays lineage out of Chincheros, Peru. Uh, I study pretty extensively uh, in the Peruvian magical and healing traditions. That is a part of me. That's a part of my daily practice. That's also a part of my uh, practice with clients. Now, some clients, kind of this woo-woo stuff will never be ideal for. So I, I know my audience. Yes, yes. But for a lot of clients, we can take a step into the sacred. And when we do that, there's a tremendous amount of leverage for change because now you're chunking up past uh, beliefs, past values, past archetype and identity into something that is beyond the client. And it's really hard to maintain these small problems when you are connecting up with the universe and everything that's sacred. So it's really influenced how I think about client work. It's gotten me out of some really tight boxes that I had put myself in, in terms of what I do with hypnosis, as well as how I manage my own emotional life. This is really compelling stuff. I am so curious about getting into the nuances of where the sacred medicine work maybe is more... I, I, I supposed an accelerator compared to perhaps some other processes, because here's what I mean. There is a world in hypnosis, and I'm thinking of, uh, the, well, uh, uh, Tamara Andreas's work, right, with the core transformation. Yeah. There's a little bit of, and even, yeah, I mean, even like Stephen Gilligan has kind of gone there, too. There are a lot of heart-centered hypnotists, people that play with spirituality and hypnosis. I'm curious, have you, did you ever try any of those? What were your experiences exploring, if you did, any of those spiritually guided approaches to that kind of work that runs more parallel, I would say, to hypnosis classically than maybe psychedelic medicine? Right. Uh, so first, in terms of like the wholeness work and things like that coming from Andreas's, I think it's beautiful. And it is really parallel to psychedelic work, but it's not the same. Hmm. I can look at like um, wholeness work and core transformations, and I can see some overlap. There's definitely, uh, whether consciously there or not, whether there was an intention to bring in psychedelic learning in to help create the process, which I don't know, because I don't know the Andreas is that well. So maybe yes, maybe no. Or I think it's touching on something very similar to what the psychedelics touch on. Um, however, the psychedelics do it in a more direct way. Um, I have experimented with that stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I like core transformations. I like Reiki. I like past life regression. I like ultra height. I think they're wonderful processes. And I think for a lot of clients, especially clients for whom psychedelics, plant medicine, sacred medicine are not really indicated, those processes are beautiful and have a, a tremendous amount of healing potential. Where they fall short though, and where sacred medicine really picks up is sacred medicine is the lightning path. It's, mm. it's tantric in the traditional sense of tantra. It is the lightning bolt. Um, you can, in my experience, both um, taking it and also apprenticing as a facilitator uh, with my business partner, who is a very experienced facilitator, uh, you can get a tremendous amount of therapy, like years of therapy done in six hours with one journey instead of doing it over a long period of time. Now, there are benefits to that, but there are also drawbacks. 
so I, I'm usually not a fan of what I call like McDonald's therapy. Like you see a lot of hypnotists who promise transformation, but we know really more repeated sessions over time tend to get a better success rate. Yes. Uh, so something to be said about that slower process of self-evolution. Um, however, there are times when that's not going to be ideal for someone. They have something that they they need to change and they need to change now. They've tried that slower path and they've not gotten to where they need it to be. Uh, the hypnotic path does not always give us access to the same internal worlds that psychedelics do. The hypnotic state shares some similarities with the psychedelic space. Uh, it's like a fraction of the psychedelic space. Oh, interesting. There are some similarities. There's some similarities in terms of what's happening in, in the brain with the downregulation of the default mode network. Hypnosis will downregulate it to some extent, where psychedelics like really take it offline. There is no critical faculty at that point. Uh, so you become very hypnotically suggestible in that space, which also makes psychedelics a really cool tool to use with hypnosis, by the way. Um, wow. So there are the overlaps. But they aren't the same, and psychedelics can get to things that hypnosis cannot. Um, there are some changes where I would not recommend psychedelics. Like somebody who wants to quit smoking, sure, there's an ample amount of research that says you can do it with psychedelics. There's nothing wrong with going that route. However, to me, the hypnotist in me goes, well, the psychedelic process is intense, and it's not without risks. It is a tantric path. There are risks. Um, and it needs to be taken very seriously. We can get the same level of change with hypnosis in a shorter amount of time, two hours versus six hours for something like smoking. Uh, and it's a lot easier on the body and mind. So the question is, do we need the atomic bomb or do we need the hammer and chisel? The uh, different tools for different situations and it depends on the individual. So my stepping into this world of psychedelic healing, uh, I find it incredibly compelling. I am passionate about it. I know it works. It answers questions that hypnosis cannot answer. Uh, sometimes you get these clients who come in for sessions who they, and this is actually where I was at when I started with psychedelics. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. Well, as a hypnotist, how the hell do you help a client who knows there's something wrong, but they have no clue. And even when you start to investigate, they're like, I just don't know. Hmm. And if you hypnosis for long enough, I guarantee you've had a client like this. Um, you can get there, but now you're talking seven, eight, 10, 12, 20 sessions versus one six hour session of psychedelics plus preparation and integration. Um, so there is that. So for me, it's not about uh, neglecting the hypnosis. I, I think it's wonderful. Uh, it's about knowing which tool is better suited for the problem and the individual. And also as a hypnotist, I don't typically suggest psychedelics to anyone. If a client asks me about it, then I'll, I'll be happy to talk about it with them. But we have to be very careful because again, there are risks not to suggest things that aren't appropriate. And also, you know, there is the legality around it. So I am very, very clear about my ethics around that. Yeah. Are there people out there that just know... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Good. I was going to say, if you're coming to me for hypnosis, you're going to get hypnosis and coaching. Right. Right. Me, I was just wondering, uh, you yeah. know, have you penetrated the psychedelic circle? Like, do people – are there people out there that would be surprised about your hypnosis background? Uh, 
I don't know surprised like in the, the psychedelic circles that I'm a member of that they, they think it's interesting there are other there are other hypnotists in some of those circles and other circles I'm really the only one but they don't really bat an eyelash because it's all a part of being a psychonaut it's all technology to explore and experiment with consciousness yes yes okay yeah no i definitely have a lot of questions around this and and sort of because uh and i was saying to you before the interview started that what i really love about what you did with the intelligent hypnotist um and and, and a lot of your work in general in that realm was the uh bringing principles and and really uh, like you were saying before scientific scrutiny and understanding uh to the process of of something things that sometimes they're esoteric even even hypnosis is quote unquote scientific and using the computer language as it is you know you're not always uh, able to know exactly uh, maybe they're taking the suggestion maybe they're not but but even still even with kind of the the variable nature of it i felt like going through your materials over the years i've been like ah okay yes 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 this is this is uh this makes a lot of sense so therefore i imagine you know you didn't just <laughs> i i do see this path sometimes of people who i feel like get into psychedelics and then it all just kind of I, 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 I miss the, it's just like, it, it almost feels like, dude, you kind of have to be there to be with them. But I feel like you might be able to bridge the gap. Um, I mean, do you think, how, um, yeah, are you, you, you must be pretty researched into psychedelic medicine and the principles that are actually at play there. Um, though I am curious for you. How far? How far does it go? Where? What does it? Where does it taper off into the sacred beyond shutting down that default mode network? Yeah. So if we explore it first from the just the, the scientific materialist view, this is based on current research. Things change. Um, the current research says when people are administered um, the classic tryptamines. So there's different classes of psychedelics. There are the classic tryptamines, which are going to be things like psilocybin, you know, magic mushrooms, um, as well as LSD would be another classic tryptamine, DMT, and then DMT and ayahuasca would be included in that uh, as a tryptamine. Uh, I believe 5-MeO might be classified as a classic tryptamine as well. Then you have this other broad category of psychedelics, the phenethylalamines which is the most popular one there is going to be MDMA, but it also includes mescaline. So uh, Wachuma, San Pedro cactus, and also peyote. Uh, and those medicines are more about feeling and emotion and embodied experience. You'll have embodied experience with the tryptamines as well, but you tend to have more visuals as, as well with the tryptamines than you do with the phenethylalamines. Then you have the non-traditional psychedelics. Uh, non-traditional psychedelic, probably the biggest, most well-known one is ketamine. Ketamine is, uh, it has a lot of different classifications. It's a dissociative. Um, so you can, you have this ability to look at things from your life, but not be pulled into the emotion of it. Uh, it's also considered, I think it's considered a hypnotic as well. Uh, it is an anesthetic at much higher doses, uh, but it has psychedelic properties. So when I'm talking about the research here, I'm talking specifically about the tryptamines because that's where the widest amount of current uh, research is in terms of neuroscience. And with the tryptamines, with magic mushrooms and with LSD, 
we know that they bind to the 5-HTO, 5H2A receptors and uh, they like envelop those receptors, the serotonin receptors, and that's what starts to create the cascade that causes what we would call a psychedelic experience. When they bond to those receptors, it causes a downregulation of the default mode network or pretty close to completely switching off of the default mode network. The default mode network is the system, the network in your brain that holds the story of you in place. Hmm. It holds your beliefs. It holds your biography. Uh, it is what hypnotists would classically refer to as the critical factor or critical faculty, depending on who you ask. Uh, it's, it's, it's rigidity. Once that's down regulated, they discovered something really cool happens. That system is a gatekeeper in terms of neural functioning. It's what keeps your brain firing in predictable ways day after day after day. That's what also keeps your sense of self in place, but also your problems. Huh. Once that's unregulated, the brain enters something called neural entropy. And that means that the brain is able to make these new novel connections. There's nothing blocking networks that never fired together before to fire together, to grow. You can create new neural networks. Uh, we also know that the classic tryptamines, as well as MDMA and ketamine, open the window of what scientists call critical learning. Critical learning is a stage in brain development that we go through as children where we are sponges and we just take everything in. You know, that's why they say like teach, if you want your children to know a second language, teach it to them when they're like two, three, four years old, because the brain will just take it on and it's really easy. Well, we know these psychedelics trigger that same event in the brain. It like relights it up from childhood and it stays active depending on the substance anywhere from three hours in the case of ketamine post-journey to three weeks in the case of LSD. So you have this tremendous opportunity for learning and growth and uh, transformation and creating new neural networks during this space. So that's what we know on the scientific side. What we don't know on the scientific side, we don't know why people have the visions that they have on these substances. We don't know why people who, for example, take DMT without knowing each other predictably encounter similar entities. Yes, I've heard we this. Don't, we don't know why people who take ayahuasca all seem to relate to her as a stern grandmother. Or those of us who are in the, the mushroom cult, if you will, we experience them. The substance is incredibly playful. But both camps experience substances as having intelligence. Why is that? Why is it that the classic tryptamines and our 5H2A receptors are a perfect match for each other? They shouldn't be. I mean, if you think about if you take magic mushrooms. I mean, the, the old explanation in the scientific circles for the number of alkaloids that create the psychedelic experience, because it isn't just psilocybin, it's also the naturally occurring psilocin, it's baocysteine and norobaocysteine. It creates the entourage effect of a magic mushroom's journey. This should technically be a poison. Like if you look at mushrooms, mushrooms are either designed to attract in the case of culinary mushrooms, because then you carry the spores and then they propagate, or to deter in the case of things like death caps. They don't want to be touched, leave them alone. Why did humans 
and the 185 plus, I think they found three more species in Central America this month, uh, or not Central America, excuse me, the Middle East. Why does, do those chemicals match perfectly and why they evolved perfectly with human neurology? We don't know. Why is it that people who come out of a psychedelic experience who entered into it treating it as sacred, when they enter it into treating, when they enter into it treating it as sacred, why is it that they tend not to devolve into psychosis, which can happen? Uh, how is it, and why is it that, that they report encountering entities in the space around them? How is it, and why is it that they are encountering? things in the natural world is having conscious consciousness people are reverting back to animism when we are in the psychedelic space and they maintain this belief post-journey there oh. is not scientific explanation for this stuff there's some theories about the visuals but those theories have not really been like they're just theories it's a nice idea but they're not compelling uh, so there's a lot we don't understand how is it that in a six hour journey, somebody can completely rewrite their life. I mean, it's, th this is where science and spirituality really connect. And sure, if one wants to take a materialist science approach, hey, I respect that. You don't have to buy into the spiritual stuff. That's cool. I've been there. I know what it's like. You can find theories and explanations for it. Those theories and explanations, when I looked for them, didn't satisfy me. And when I compared what the scientists were saying to what my lived experience was, uh, there was a massive disconnect and there were things that happened that defy scientific explanation, at least in in my experience of sacred medicine. So I think the medicine has an intelligence. I think it needs to be treated with respect and we need to treat ourselves with respect. Science is giving us a better understanding of the material processes that allow our spirits to commune with the spirits of the medicine. So I don't think it's an either or. I think spirituality and science can work hand in hand. Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is that was that was uh, that was a whole lot of mind blowing stuff one after another. I mean, I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Talk about talk about some stuff to sit on. Uh, I I I do wonder here because. Part of me sometimes thinks when I bring psychedelics people on the show um, that I'm just going, okay, t talk me into doing it, Jess. Talk me into it. <laughs> I just, <won't> do that. <laughs> just get me there. Because, but look, I, in, in the sense that I, I always, I mean, it doesn't make sense. Like you said, to me, it does not make sense that these things are there. Um, and and they have these positive effects so why clear and i know you know sometimes people extend this metaphor to um you know that it's the gift it's the gift from the gods stuff like that um but uh, isn't it i mean why why wouldn't it be um but here's what i'll say to you here then here becomes my question which is why what do you think is going on with people that I remember reading an article when ayahuasca got big in New York City and and someone was like oh yeah it just seemed like a bunch of people were uh you know I was in someone's apartment and and eh, uh you know th th there does seem to be a lot of people that I guess put maybe they're not in the right sacred context um do you have are you able to kind of 
at a very high level distinguish between the type of like, eh, it was weird or non-starter trip experiences versus people that like really have profound changes? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this. Um, I've had trips where I've gone, eh. Uh, they're not always the most profound things. In my experience, they tend more often to be. But, you know, if if you're a psychonaut long enough, you're going to have some trips where, like, you know, that kind of sucked. <laughs> right. Even even in those experiences, though, either neutral experiences or negative experiences are an invitation to do some self-inquiry because you're working in partnership with the medicine. If something comes up that is like, mm, that wasn't that great or that was awful, that's something coming from inside you. So it's just showing you, hey, there's more work to do. So that's awesome when that happens. Sometimes it's more powerful, honestly, than like the most beautiful divine experiences. Uh, there is a lot to be said about set and setting. So especially with ayahuasca, because ayahuasca has kind of grown into this cultural egregore in in the um cultural north yes like i have to go sit with the shaman down in the jungles in peru and quitos or something like that which yeah i would suggest going to do that i probably suggest doing that maybe before doing ayahuasca in an apartment in new york city right right i'm waiting I, there i don't know like I, I do psychedelics in my apartment it's okay but it's not the same as actually going and having the full cultural experience yes other thing that might be very specific to ayahuasca uh, is actually it's twofold. The first is if you're doing it not in a structured retreat, I have encountered facilitators in the U.S., uh, not necessarily in New York, uh, where I'm based, but in other places in the U.S. who do not require the dieta, uh, the diet that, that is two weeks prior to the ayahuasca journey and two weeks after at a bare minimum. Yeah. If listeners are looking at an ayahuasca ceremony where they do not require the dieta, run. Do not mm. do that do, Please, for your life, do not do it. Uh, and here's why. The dieta is, people say it's like, oh, a spiritual cleansing and yada, yada, yada. Sure, that stuff might be true. But there's a very real medical reason for it. And it's because the uh, the one chemical that goes into ayahuasca, ayahuasca is a brew of at least two substances the plant containing dmt and also a plant that contains an maoi maoi changes how you break down and digest the things that you consume because if you were just to eat dmt it's not orally active um so there is a uh, certain plants that they use in the amazon that do vary depending on where you go in the amazon uh, i know up here in north america those plants can be difficult to get so sometimes people use syrian rue uh, as an maoi and those MAOIs can dramatically alter blood pressure if you haven't been restricting salts and certain proteins. Uh, and it can become physiologically dangerous. So if you're considering an ayahuasca retreat, do one with a shaman who requires the dieta. It is for your physical well-being, not just your spiritual. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's not clear in those cases where people don't follow the dieta if who don't end up having a physical side effect, like they're fine because maybe they're not predisposed to hypertension or something. It's still not clear whether or not that lessens the impact of, of the ayahuasca. So that could be issue number one. Issue number two is uh, brewing ayahuasca, just like brewing wachuma, is incredibly time consuming. It takes days. And especially if you're in a place where it's not naturally growing, you have to import it, which 
has its own host of issues, uh, you kind of get a different brew each time. It becomes a lot less predictable. So it could just be that that brew at that time was not effective enough, uh, which that tends to happen less if you go to a retreat space who is doing this like day after day after day for months and years on end. Uh, the third possibility for people who go, yeah, it was weird, but whatever, is that it's just not the medicine for them. Uh, so my my co-facilitator, my business partner and dear friend, he uh, sat for a week in ayahuasca ceremonies down in Peru and it didn't do anything for him. He didn't trip at all. Mm. Uh, he's tried smoking DMT. It has done nothing for him. I smoked a lot of DMT a few months ago, like an entire bowl of DMT, and it didn't touch me. Wow. So it's just not the medicine right now. Doesn't mean it'll always be that way. It's just right at that time and space, it's not the right medicine. And for those people, it could just be not the right medicine for what they need. And ayahuasca, you know, I think it has a lot to do with Instagram culture, has really become the trendy psychedelic. Um, no offense to my ayahuasca friends out there, but I don't know. Like the, the physiological toll it takes to me, I don't find it appealing. It doesn't call to me. Hmm. But I think because of the trendiness, that's what people latch on to first. Where totally. it might not be the medicine that they need at that time. It might be something else. It might be MDMA. It might be uh, wachuma. It might be mushrooms or any of the other tryptamines. So there are differences. I'd say if you had like a meh, didn't really do anything experience, but you're still curious about psychedelics, try a different psychedelic with a different facilitator and just see. Yeah. Well, it's like the hypnosis idea too. I mean, it's not always, it's never, it is amazing that uh, it's in general, the way we generalize things. Well, I guess that is kind of, uh, well, what hypnosis is founded upon in a way. But but yeah, we one time means that I could never be hypnotized again. One hypnotist means that it was a bad, oh, you know, I can't be hypnotized. I've, been, I've tried. It's like, what? Okay. It just doesn't, um, so, so it makes sense that there would be as many varieties um, in that regard as well um but let me ask you something about the myths <laughs> especially this one myth because i want you to dispel this or um you know or 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 speak to the truth of it what is up with the whole rumor and it's usually around lsd i think more so maybe but so i know that gets a little outside the realm of sacred medicine but i've heard it. it sorry lsd is sacred oh is it even though it's not, it is, it is the it is the psychedelic of modern Western society. It is our naturally born psychedelic. Oh, I love that. Naturally, by human intervention, but you know, it still it comes from a, it comes from ergot. It comes from a fungus. Do you have you delved into that as well? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Now that always feels like that's the it's the uh, it's 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 a that that's a big one, um, but I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's the word acid, so like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got the connotation around it. Um, but I guess what I was gonna say is like, what's this whole rumor? I mean, I guess you hear it in the hypnosis world too, though. It, it, there's no way that's actually true. Um, but the guy that never got out of the trip, 
Is that a real thing? Like people that just had one bad trip and it changed them fundamentally for the rest of their life? I mean, I know it's usually attributed to schizophrenia in that case, but sometimes I hear it with regular people in shrooms, just these urban legends. Oh, this guy, he never came back after doing that. What is your take? Uh, okay, so as with anything, uh, there is a kernel of truth and a lot of misinformation here. Um, a very, very small minority of people, psychedelics are not ideal for. Uh, these are people who were, have already been diagnosed with schizophrenia or any type of um, psychotic disorders, even things like borderline personality disorder. Uh, for that, it's not necessarily a no-go, but you really should see a medical doctor and do it with them. Like, you're not going to come on one of my retreats. Let's just put it like that. Yeah. Or individuals who have first generation of that in their family history, so their parents or their brothers and sisters. Uh, it's not necessarily a no-go, but they are at a higher risk of the psychedelic triggering uh, the schizophrenia to appear more quickly than it might have otherwise, or the psychosis. So that's the one group. That's group number one who this is going to be really contraindicated for because, yeah, what could happen is they could trip and never ground back into here now because they already had that that genetic predisposition or already had that disease. And this just becomes a like amplifying of it. The next group who need to proceed with caution um, are really the people who don't have a lot of emotional internal discipline. So like if you come on a retreat with us, first of all, there's a there's a screening process, uh, but we also require things like a daily meditation practice. You need to build internal skills to manage yourself in that state. Um, there are people in that group who don't have a lot of emotional discipline, uh, who haven't gone through, you know, any type of course of self-discovery, whether it's meditation or therapy, uh, generally people who are not at cause for their own emotions, they're the victims of everything in life. Uh, they need to proceed with caution because this is going to be one of the biggest experiences of their lives. And if they don't have responsibility over their own states, there is an opportunity for things to derail. It doesn't mean they get caught in the trip forever. Mm. They, they, there is a physiological life cycle for the substance in your system. But what can happen is in the trip, they are they kind of go way out into left field because they don't have emotional discipline. And then they don't ground themselves back. These individuals, they don't get stuck in the trip. But what you see with these individuals is uh, the instances of HPPV, I think it is, which is the persistent visual phenomena, like the, the they used to call them flashbacks. Right. Uh, there isn't a, a chemical reason for it. it. It is an emotional thing. Um, by the way, flashbacks are not like a lifelong thing when that happens. It is more highly associated with LSD, but it tends to be short-lived. It is not like a life thing. It's usually like a few weeks and it resolves on its own. Um, so really, you know, if somebody has history of psychosis or if somebody's not willing or practiced at being a cause for their own emotions, uh, th those are the groups that can land in trouble. People like teens who go out and party and like take five hits of acid at a rave or something. I don't know why you would do that. Don't do that. Please don't do that. Uh, 
they can land up in trouble because it's not the right setting and they don't have the maturity to handle the experience that's going to unfold. So those are the people who can end up harmed by these substances because these substances, these medicines amplify what's inside of you and they amplify what's around you. But I mean, like there's been times when I've been in a journey where I have been really worried, like, am I going to be stuck like this forever? I kind of want this to stop now. It's usually yeah. like the journey has gone for like eight hours and inevitably my friend will say to me, sorry, Jess, I hate to disappoint you, but at some point this trip is going to have to end. Then it's like, oh man. <laughs> what is, I mean, look, I, 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 just so we can kind of get a taste of this. <laughs> Is it, I, I'm wondering about it too, because, you know, I, I, it does feel like a long time for a trip and yet, you know, okay. So you're talking to entities. What, what that could be, that could be two hours. That could be uh 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, have you, how long, okay. How long have the entities given you? <laughs> do you know can you are you uh, i i mean i'm not even sure your mind is, would be able to know how yeah. much time no you're not really unless okay again it depends on the dosage the dosage level and how sensitive someone is you know sometimes for myself i'll track time or for a group carlos and i will track time um but you don't track it all that closely and sometimes if the dose is really high like five minutes can feel like three hours you just have like it's massive time distortion totally it's not really worth it the track time because you'll learn very quickly in that state that things like tracking time and trying to control the flow of experience are all very kind of like conscious mind adult stuff and it's kind of an illusion mm. it's not uh, instead in that space you become more in touch with who you are at your core and you become more in touch with what is happening in the immediate present moment. So you're not really caring how long the experience is going on for. You're not really doing this meta analysis of it. Uh, you might go back later and be curious, um, but it's really, really difficult to track that. And it's, it's not all that important. Like there, a journey will have three phases. Um, you, you have the taking, you have like the opening ritual, the taking of the medicine and the time it takes for the medicine to integrate into your system, where you'll start to uh, experience first subtle changes and then very profound changes in your sensory perception and your inner and outer experience. Then you'll plateau when you're at the peak and you're usually there depending on the substance, you know, with mushrooms, uh, it can be two to four hours at the peak. Uh, with LSD, it could be eight hours, or if you're me, 10 hours. Uh, it just depends, again, on the dosing and the person. And then you have this uh, very kind of gentle landing that happens as things slowly begin to recede. And that can be, again, depending on the medicine, it could be an hour, it could be three hours. Uh, so you're kind of tracking these large chunks of time. Uh, usually, like, once someone takes the medicine, you're kind of acutely aware, especially the first few times, like, how long has it been? When's it going to happen? And again, it depends on the medicine and it depends on the dosage. It could be anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour and a half. Uh, and then beyond that, your, your gauging of time is just solely where are you in the journey? What's happening around you? Maybe you're tracking the songs you're listening to. That's about it. 
Um, but it is a journey. So the experience is not uniform throughout the entire six hours, eight hours, whatever the case may be. You will go through different phases, even when you're at the peak, depending on what you're doing. Even something as subtle as changing a song will dramatically alter your experience and alter the trip. Whoa. Yeah. Music is incredibly important and highly influential to the experience that you'll have in that space. And then there'll be some times where you might want to lay down and have like the sleep mask on and do an inner journey or, you know, it could be an inner journey, but you could, your soul could be journeying outside, who knows? Or there's other times when you're talking with friends and sharing your experience or you're doing a magical ritual or you're doing some body work or some qigong or something like that and experimenting and discovering what it's like to be embodied in this state and in this space. It just depends. Oh, whoa. There's so much interesting stuff here. I mean, I'm part of me is thinking about how... I guess I'm curious, you know, they, people always talk about, I, I, I kind of love the vagueness of this phrase of words, but I, but I, and, and I'll tell you in a second, it's, it's words you've used a lot. Um, and, and at the same time, I'm also going, yeah, but sometimes if you just stay with hypnosis, it's like, you're either in trance or you're not in trance. And then people will say, well, there are infinite numbers of trances, but I don't really know what that means and and then when you bring on psychedelics i'm going yeah you your mind is getting going to different places here than than just simply going into this uh you know kind of zoned out dissociated trance state so i guess my question for you is this the phrase is altered states of consciousness do you how many are there at this point how is your understanding of even that phrase altered states of consciousness shifted i prefer not altered states of consciousness i might use it just because it's kind of in the vernacular personally uh, i prefer non-ordinary states of consciousness oh yeah i love that because what does it mean that it's altered because our even what we consider conscious awareness varies throughout the day our, our brainwave cycles change uh, we're just not used to tracking them consciously in terms of how many uh you know i don't know because in my experience the hypnotic state is uh different in many ways from the, the psychedelic state and within psychedelics the mushroom space for me is very different from the lsd space which is very different from the ketamine space which is very different from the mdma space which is very different from the cannabis space which is very different from the wachuma space uh, so the, for me, even though many of those substances are doing something similar physiologically, how I experience them is unique. And then even then, one mushroom journey is not going to be the same as the next. So I, I don't think we can count how many. I think it's really just a spectrum of consciousness. And where do you choose to put your awareness at any given time? Yeah, I suppose, look, I, I kind of asked that question knowing or hoping that infinity was the answer in the sense that I think there is a lot of, hmm, I mean, my gosh, I even, uh, okay, I, I'm going to share this. I, I saw it, someone put this up. I have it. I took a photo of it, screenshot on my phone, and I thought, this is so, this is such a good tweet. Um, it's from this woman, Melanie melatonin lao is is the twitter handle um and it wrote 
she, she wrote, Western cultures believe we must be alive for a purpose, to work, to make money. Some indigenous cultures believe we're alive just as nature is alive, to be here, to be beautiful and strange. We don't need to achieve anything to be valid in our humanness. That, to me, is the crux of why this mind-expanding conversation that that I've been having against, you know, uh, with with various different schools of thought, and particularly the hypnosis and the NLP world, just because I I think it's a it's a it's a it's a true gateway um, for for people that might be a little less. You know, oh, is spirituality? Yeah, no, it's all BS. It's like, yeah, but can you can you really? Isn't this an amazing human potential thing that's going on here when you go into an altered state? Like to me, that's like it was a big bridge for me. So I, I'm 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 very intrigued by it. Um, but I, but I suppose. You know, and I think I know um, one of your mentors, John Overdurf, is all about different, you know, the these states of being, going into these enduring states of being. I mean, to me, at the end of the day, Jess, um, it all comes down to, you know, our time on this planet is about experience. Therefore, I feel that psychedelics is kind of like... Yeah, what else do you have? What experience? The experience that you get when you get a paycheck, which is also fleeting? Or are we really going to delve into experience here? Um, so, I suppose, I guess I'm wondering, you know, do you... Mm, I don't know how far... I'm not even sure what the question is, but, but I know... I, I think I know where I'm going, which is... At the end of the day, do you do you... Do you have a vision for a world where people are more cognizant of how many states of being they can have inherently as part of simply just being alive? How can, how can we forward that mission? Because that, to me, is the most interesting aspect of humanity. It's how many different ways can we just be? What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, that is a beautiful quote, and I agree with that. And I would add the second layer to this, that the kind of Western impulse to build, to create, to produce is not a bad thing. I want to be very clear about this. Earning money is not a bad thing, guys. We, we are all a part of this game, this illusion of this life on earth. We need to participate. And why not participate in a way that is uh, loving and nurturing for others, but also takes care of our material needs? Like, that's fine. Um, I'm not one of these kind of Zen guys who's like, give everything away, and go away. I live in New York city. That would not work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I do think that psychedelics become an invitation for us to get more in touch with our nature and to live more in harmony with the planet, more in harmony with everything else. Because if you think about it, we aren't, you know, we aren't separate from, you know, the trees and the birds in the sky and you know the puma in the jungle we're not we are all a part of this creation we like to think of ourselves as unique because we think we have language and nothing else does but we now know that other beings have language as well that we don't understand yet uh and there is a lot that has come out of western culture that puts humans kind of at the top of the the natural order and 
that's coming out of Western religious traditions that, that then funneled through philosophy, that funneled through the Renaissance, funneled through uh, the um, Industrial Revolution uh, and the boom in philosophy in the 1800s. And it just kind of encouraged this cycle of we're number one and we need to keep producing versus the kind of more traditional human view of seeing ourselves as a part of this uh, this game, this mission that every thing on earth is a part of and an important part of. So yes, while we are different from trees, you know, trees do not have the intellect we have. Uh, we are also not different in that we are a part of the ecosystem together. So psychedelics give us an opportunity to develop more empathy for that ecosystem, more empathy for other people so that our behaviors naturally align with wanting to take care of ourselves and take care of other people and take care of creation to the best of our ability. Uh, so they offer that invitation. They also offer the invitation for us to step more into the magical realm, more into the spiritual, more into our soul's purpose, whatever that may be. And for like the atheists out there who are like, we don't have a soul, just translate this to mean stepping more into what's congruent with your core values. Um, and it isn't, you know, it isn't just about the, the trip. Uh, this isn't about just getting high. There's a lot of work that goes into it to get the most from a sacred medicine journey. There is the preparation phase, there is the taking of the medicine, but then there's also, what do you do when the journey's over? I mean, technically we like to say the journey never ends, It's but there is a point when physiologically the medicine leaves the system and your perceptions return to more every day, which is good because you know you gotta have a job and family and stuff. Uh, so we're grateful that it does return. But what do you do with that experience? Are you just going to be a thrill seeker who wants to trip out every weekend or every other weekend more accurately? Or are you engaging with the medicine because you want to know more of who you are? You want to know more of the world around you. You want to relate to others and creation and the divine and yourself in a more holistic, natural way. Uh, then the work comes in the space in between the actual medicine journeys. And it's what are you doing in the here and now to take the lessons of your journeys and to start living them? Yes. I, I can't, you know, when you say that, when you talk about the thrill seeker, uh, I definitely, I mean, I've met these people, Jess, and I always, when when, when someone tells me that they're doing, oh, yeah, we bought some shrooms, we're going to just do some shrooms this weekend, I'm going, oh, okay, and, and what, what happens for you when you do shrooms? Do you, uh, you know, do you have any profound insights, all this stuff? And I've met people that just go, no, nah, it just feels good, and it's like, it's a fun time, and I'm sitting there going, is it? Is it the shrooms fault? Is it your fault? Is it really not even fault, but but why? Uh, I don't know. I, I suppose I have this optimistic view that, you know, there are plants out there or, or some kind of substance that if you take it, something profound is going to happen in your life. But it seems that there are just as many people that take it for the thrill. And I think. What's the purpose when it's so powerful? Uh, what, what do you make of that? Well, there, there are a few things going on here. Um, well, first, I'm going to say to those people, whoever you are, I'm really impressed. Because when I take mushrooms, it never feels good. <laughs> it always feels like work. Uh, so I'm impressed if you can go and party with these things. Wow. 
but joking aside, um, <laughs> right. A lot of that with mushrooms is going to come down to dose level. If you're taking a gram or two, you're not likely going to have a profound experience. You can, if you go into it with the intention to, but if you're like, yeah, I'm going to take a gram and a half and go to this, this music festival, you're probably just going to have a good time. The dose isn't high enough. Now, if you take five grams, um, you're not going to be partying. And if you can get off the floor, I will be impressed. Uh, <laughs> right. More likely to have a extremely profound experience, but you're also very likely to have a challenging experience. Um, so the higher the dose, the more opportunity there is for these profound divine experiences and invitations to personal growth. But people who are just like, I got some mushrooms for the weekend, I'm going to go party. They're not taking like four or five, six grams, which are usually the, the doses that I work with. Uh, they're going to take like a gram, a gram and a half, maybe two grams. And that's going to be it. And that's going to be enough because that, what that's going to do is alter perception. It's going to make them feel more connected to the people around them. You know, they might get some very mild visual, open-eyed visuals, which is like really cool if there's a light show. And, you know, if, if you approach, I don't think there's a problem with approaching the medicine for recreation. I, I think it's absolutely fine. I think if you're doing it and you know you're doing it for the purpose of recreation and you're doing it responsibly, beautiful. Because if we take the word recreation, what does that mean? Hmm. Recreate. Recreation is a sacred activity. You're recreating the self. So working with these substances, especially mushrooms, because mushrooms are very playful, we don't always have to have this kind of deep, profound, transformative experience that is like a, you know, high magic ritual. Sometimes it's okay to just take it with some friends and have like heart to heart discussions, which can be beautiful and profound in their own way. So a lot of what accounts for what happens is what is the mindset? What is the purpose that you bring to the medicine? What are you telling the medicine that you want from the experience? Because it's a partnership. The medicine isn't going to, at lower doses, is not going to force you into things that you don't want. At lower doses, it will at higher doses. Um, so yeah, if you want the plant to force you into a profound divine experience, uh, get with a facilitator and take a high dose. You'll get it. Yeah. Are, are there just people that you found have I, and you did allude to this a little before but but i, I want to go a step further here um are there people that wake up into a reality where they can now see things that not everybody else sees and i mean that in a very literal kind of magical way <laughs> um you know angels or or like you said ghosts earlier i mean are there are there uh, i i have this idea being such a uh, I, I suppose an agnostic, I would say, in this world. Someone that doesn't really have direct experience with the divine and, and wants to put on, and we can talk about this too separately because I think it's in interesting, but there have been several times, Jess, where I've started that classic Monroe Institute protocol, uh, you know, the gateway process. I'm like listening to these things and I'm going, oh, surely I can go deeper in the trance. Surely I can astral project. It's just, I just got to keep conditioning myself to get to this point where I do that. Now, I am curious on a, from like a, how does it affect you as a hypnotic subject level? And 
we can get to that as a follow-up. But my first question is more about just waking up in general to a spiritual world. I mean, um, have you seen that? What are the telltale signs of that? Um, is it related to any of the things that the the spontaneous awakenings that happen when people are at rock bottom and then and then something like switches on. I mean, what 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 is uh, what have you seen gone on there? So there's kind of multiple levels. There are the more subtle awakenings, and then there are the uh, more showy awakenings. Hmm. The more subtle awakenings are when people come out of these experiences and they just naturally make positive life changes. And it doesn't take work. You know, for myself, uh, I came out of a journey. I did not go into the, this journey with this intention at all. Uh, I went in for other reasons for something I needed to heal. Uh, I came out of it and uh, I just didn't want to drink anymore. And I used to be a brewer. Like I had a passion for brewing craft beer and I just couldn't touch it anymore. It's just not my thing. Or if I like if I had a sip of a drink, I didn't feel like I needed to have it or anything beyond that. And I ended up losing 70 pounds, eating better, completely turned my health around. So those are kind of the more subtle spiritual awakenings. And then you have the showy ones. And these are the ones <laughs> people, uh, you know, start seeing entities in day-to-day -day life or having more synchronicities or having um, more kind of precognition stuff and astral stuff happen. This doesn't happen for everyone, but one way of thinking of these medicines are that they are an amplifier. So if you have somebody who already naturally has some inclination towards these skills, in my experience, personally, and through facilitating, it will bring those skills more to the surface. Um, you know, how do you know? Well, it's usually when somebody comes back and tells me that, you know, they're, they're seeing a ghost in their apartment and stuff is moving around without them touching it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Or they tell me that they now astral project. Awesome. Uh, so there, there is a learning curve there when that happens uh, because spiritual awakenings are, um, again, in the tantric sense, they, are, they can be disruptive and they can be dangerous. So they have to be handled with care and respect. And it's important when those types of things happen to not make a big show of it. Uh, it this is not like a bragging thing uh, because that becomes even more energetically disruptive. It's about finding ways to integrate it into life so that you can continue to live the life that you want and begin to use it as a skill. I, I know my own abilities amplified dramatically. And I had a lot of really weird stuff happen after my first few journeys that actually at one point took me to the brink of sanity. I thought I was losing my mind. Uh, and until I learned how to manage it, because I have through my family line, this kind of natural predisposition towards this stuff, until I understood what was going on and learned how to manage it, it was incredibly disruptive. But once I learned how to manage it now, uh, it becomes useful. It becomes a skill. That's interesting because I already thought, I mean, I don't know if you're able to share any examples because I always want to know examples of when people are at the brink of sanity, um, losing it. It's an interesting topic. Uh, you don't hear about it, but but um, I already I, I'm going to give you credit and say that I believe, at least from what I've seen and from the results you've had, um, that already you would have been the type of practitioner of healing that 
looks at someone and can almost have that, you know, the, they call it the, the psychic abilities that Milton Erickson had. Notice it, knowing the woman was pregnant, right? Like looking at the client come in, seeing the situation and being like, yeah, was there, was there, um, did your mom have like a, a, a miscarriage at some point? Like that kind of thing where you just can like pull that out. I believe you were pretty much kind of there in a lot of ways with your calibration abilities before this. So where, where does it get to the point where you're now going, whoa, this is even beyond what I thought I was capable of? Uh, when I have a, cl a client's ancestor walk through my office space when I'm on Zoom with them. <laughs> Whoa! Okay, now, what is that? <laughs> Does that mean, is that fully transparent? Are they actually there? It's they like, speak. It's like, yeah. a, it's like a silhouette that moves by, and I know when this happens now, because I started catching the pattern of it, that when this happens, there's usually some sort of family trauma that they need to resolve. And every time it's happened, I've said to a client, like, hey, out of curiosity, have you done any work with your ancestors? Do you have any family history of trauma? Every time it's I either. Yes, I've done work with ancestors or no, I haven't yet. But yes, I have family trauma. So that's and how I, I use. Oh, wow. And, and yeah. I do. I, and, and to contextualize this, like I believe you in the sense that you seem, at least from everything, I know the type of person that wouldn't just be like. No, it was just like a really good trance, man. And I was like, it was like a trance hallucination where they were like, there's a difference between the hypnotic hallucination and, and this phenomenon. Um, you know, I, I'm just thinking of the people out there that might be like, okay, was she just getting really into that session and she's good at putting herself in the trance? Like, uh, I'm not good. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is, this must have been, um, yeah, were you uh, were you able to like? Hmm, that is interesting. The brink of sanity. I mean, I don't yeah. know if. So that that like, I, and this is probably going to be like really woo woo for people, but yeah, uh, I was in a in a medicine journey, uh, and I, I was uh, with my co facilitator. He was facilitating for me, which is a one on one, and I take in a I think like six grams of mushrooms. I had taken a really high dose, and I'd been laying on the floor for a long time, and. Cause I like, okay, when I, when I journey, I love carpets in the floor. It's like the best thing ever. Uh, but at one point I, t I turned to my partner, I'm like, my shoulder really hurts. Like I had gotten this really intense pain across my shoulder, like right across here. And I was in tears and I hadn't moved. Like there was absolutely no reason for this. I don't know what happened. He didn't say anything right away. Um, he was very quiet and I didn't know at the time he had done this, but he had taken a couple pictures on his phone of me. He comes over uh, and he's a, a, a trained massage therapist. He picks up my arm and the whole thing pops. And he goes, do you have a history of dislocating your arm? I'm like, no. And he's like, well, your arm was dislocated. I just popped it back in. Uh, it took me eight weeks to rehab that arm. It was, it, it was a legit dislocation and it was awful. The next day, he showed me the pictures that he took, uh, and he caught spirits in the pictures, and there's no explanation for them. He caught four spirits around my shoulder. What? Why, why would spirits dislocate your shoulder? Well, here's where th – th this is this is where this descent into insanity starts. <laughs> so it's like, okay, that's really weird. Uh, I saw the picture, and I got, like, a really sick feeling in my stomach. Like, this is not good. This is not – this is not like an angel swinging by to say hi. 
there's something going on here. Uh, I'd returned home and I'd started to get a lot of poltergeist activity happening in my apartment. Like I had like a, a favorite etched glass that was a gift that broke spontaneously. Yeah. Wow. Uh, my teacup kept moving around. My clothes would disappear and then appear in random places. So now I'm getting like real scared because I'm like, oh my God, it's El Diablo. Uh, I got like a demon or something. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I And it was continuous. Like I have video of like I had sitting on the coffee table a vase of flowers and flowers are shaking for no reason. Picked them up, moved them off the table, moved them onto a different table, started shaking again. Oh my gosh. Really, really weird stuff. And I was having a tremendous amount of uh, night terrors and um, sleep paralysis issues like every single night. And I was talking to my friend who lives on, on the West Coast who facilitated that journey for me. And before I had told him what was going on, because I was still having pain in my shoulder as well, and I had done another mushroom journey on my own in my apartment and the issue of my shoulder flared back up. Before I shared that with him, on that call, he's like, let me stop you right here. I just got a really intense pain in my shoulder on, on the left side. So it was the same shoulder. So now I know something is bouncing between us. <laughs> and like, I was in tears. I was like, I don't know what to do. I've done a cleansing, nothing's working. I ended up doing with him, we did a, a massive banishing ritual. And then we did on top of that, uh, we some Ho'oponopono work. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, this is really weird. At, like shortly after we had done this ritual, the activity had started to die down, but I was still seeing stuff in the apartment, still seeing like black orbs and stuff. But like the poltergeist stuff had, had quieted down, thank God. I'd gone to see a friend of mine in the city who was like uh, the best Reiki practitioner I know to help with the rehab of my shoulder. Uh, and she is a wonderfully gifted psychic and she was doing the, the Reiki for my shoulder. And she's like, I don't normally tell people this, but for some reason I'm getting that you have some trauma in your family line and it's somewhere in your ancestry uh, there was a, a case of really extreme abuse. I won't go into the, the details of it here, but it was pretty horrific. Like, oh, well, that's awful. So I go home and I do Ho'oponopono for whatever spirit that is. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for them and for the perpetrator, and I release them. Two months later was um, the one-year anniversary of my cousin who drank herself to death. Who was younger than me and i was talking to my uncle who was not not her father he was her uncle as well uh, and i didn't really know this cousin she lived like a thousand miles away my uncle said to me you know she experienced this abuse and he did not know what was revealed to me shortly after that my grandfather was passing and my grandfather had at the end of his life extreme dementia and he did not know my cousin he had visions of her. Oof. All the activity in my apartment completely stopped. Yeah. So that stuff can happen. Like it's, if one has, if one has kind of a predisposition towards the psychic stuff, this will amplify it. If you are open to working in the spirit world, this will enhance that. Uh, it doesn't happen for everybody. It doesn't happen every time. If someone is like, no, that's all bullshit, fair enough. Like, I'm not saying you have to believe me, that's cool. Uh, they're because they're not open to that, they may not have that experience. However, 
they still might have that experience. I, I know somebody uh, personally who uh, was a self-described atheist who came on a retreat with us, who came, came out of it and said pretty much, you guys suck. I can't be an atheist anymore. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, there, there's a lot more, there's a lot more in creation happening than we are consciously aware of and way more than our consciousness could hold. And psychedelics show us that. Totally, totally. Um, let me ask you about the hypnosis piece. I mean, for someone like me that is looking to or, or or wants to i i mean look i'm at this point now jess where i can listen to the tracks the hypnosis tracks and i do but it's always like okay i woke up when they said to wake up but but i didn't i didn't see anything i don't remember anything i have the amnesia for the whole session there's a part of me that goes i want to really explore my inner world, my inner landscape, to have more uh, visibility into that. Um, I mean, you know, when it when it comes to these training processes and in-training process, getting yourself to go to this place, do you think psychedelics can get you there? Is it not related at all? Have you noticed people become different kinds of hypnosis subjects after? Yeah. So, you know, especially if you listen to recordings, what you're describing is really common. People tend to just check out. Uh, I know I do. I love hypnosis recordings to fall asleep at night because I will just check out. Yeah. Uh, so that that's kind of normal. Whereas like in-person hypnosis, there tends to be a bit more conscious regulation True. happening, which can also get in the way of exploration. Uh, psychedelics, the two, well, the two tools, if you want to do psychedelic, or if you want to do exploration, I'm going to say are psychedelics and mindfulness meditation. Those are the two essentials, uh, because both will show you your inner landscape in, in different ways. Mindfulness work will show you in very gentle, subtle ways that require a lot of discipline. And the psychedelics will show you in very flashy, abrupt ways. Uh, so both work hand in hand. They, they go together. Um, I would recommend both in those, in those instances. In terms of what it will do for you as a hypnotic subject, everybody's different. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it necessarily makes me a better or worse hypnotic sub subject. I think um, it makes me a better hypnotic subject with the people that I journey with, for sure, because you build a very deep bond with the people you journey with. Um, but I think it also gives me a lot more control in day-to-day -day life as to how I use my consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> this reminds me, this makes me think of, uh, you know, I, and again, this could just be a story, but um, something just came to mind. I heard it the other day. I was listening to, to, to uh, Mr. Doctor, I suppose, uh, Richard Bandler talking about um, how when he showed up to study with Milton Erickson, Milton didn't have any idea what kind of a subject he was going to get because Richard had been in trances uh, as he grew up in the 60s. And that makes me go like, OK, yeah, is there something there about 
the fact that you you've just done all these kind of psychedelic drugs for so long that that makes you a different kind of hypnotic subject i for him as you said maybe but but uh i don't know i just thought it was an interesting story i love this idea of like a hypnotist not even know i let me ask you that have you ever encountered someone that you're like whoa this person has been in a lot of trances in their life yeah yeah they're usually the people who are really good hypnotic subjects yeah. yeah. Okay. So maybe there is something there. Um, okay. Before we before we wrap, I mean, I think this is so interesting. And by the way, everybody needs to check out sacredmedicinejourneys.com. Uh, this is where you can learn about these very unique retreats. I, I love that uh, you're not, you know, it's not an ayahuasca retreat. It's a very, um, you know, you're, you're with your co-facilitator, um, you're, you're bringing the experience of people that have been guiding and and healing the mind for for many many years which makes me feel more comforted in some ways as well as keeping the sacredness of the session so i think it's a i think it's just a very for people that might be like oh gosh uh where am i just jumping into something completely scary here foreign um I, it seems like it's you're in very good hands um so yeah i i definitely <laughs> i'm intrigued now Beyond the fact that, you know, be, be beyond necessarily me like signing up to do all this. And also, if you are interested in learning more, I know there's a there's a retreat coming up or the, the you said the end of this month. Um, uh, there's a retreat starting uh, at the beginning of October. Registration for it ends on August 31st. Got it. OK, August got it um end of august 2023 for those listening uh now though stay on the website because if you or if you want to just if you're interested in that retreat or if you in general uh want to be on the mailing list team at sacred medicine journeys dot com or sacred is it sacred medicine journey or journeys journeys yeah. journeys.com we'll put the link there for you you can uh email them let them know your interest let them just know your general interest in this uh you know they the very uh a lot, lot of good information i think i'm on the email list so lo love reading about uh what you and carlos casados are up to um yes my question for you is this though i've had people in the past i've been like okay <laughs> I've just explored intellectually the idea of, well, you know, what, what if I, what if I were to do shrooms, what would happen? And, and I had someone once tell me who is a, who is really into shrooms say to me, Greg, this was a few years back, so it might be different now, but he's like, Greg, I don't know if you're ready yet, man. So I guess I'm wondering, what does it mean to not be ready? Is that really a thing? Like, is it, I mean, obviously it's better to have skilled practitioners, but, um, you know, I, you're not going to stop people. I know people, Jess, even for bachelorette parties that go into a cabins upstate New York with a bunch of shrooms, hang out with their friends as their first time doing it. And it is a good recreational time and sometimes profound things come out of it. Um, so, you know, is there is who are the people that aren't ready to even do that? In your opinion, what, what is that whole myth of not being ready yet? Right. So 
you know, I don't know what your, your friend was seeing in terms of readiness versus not readiness, because we're always in a state of change. Uh, and of course, I would have to, Carlos, and I would have to chat with you more to really gauge readiness. But people who aren't ready, um, they tell you unconsciously. They'll have mm -hmm. an interest, but they're not going to commit to it. You just, you know. Uh, then there are other people who are not yet, uh, have not yet developed an internal skill set that is going to help them get the most out of the journey. So like they're not disciplined with like having a meditation practice or like when we suggest starting a meditation practice, because uh, we know a lot of people will come in not having one already, they'll push back or not do it. Uh, or if they have uh, so many fears about it that you just get a sense of, okay, the fear, some fear is healthy. You know, if I'm totally truthful, I have some fear before every dose I take. I think that is a natural, healthy thing. And I think people who don't are the people who get themselves into trouble. Uh, so it becomes a matter of, does the fear outweigh the curiosity and desire? Um, but in, mo in most instances, the person will show through their behavior and through their choice of words and their tonality and that sort of thing. And then there are the people who it'll just never be right for, which are a small minority. Um, but I personally, Carlos and I personally know of a few um, who are just not grounded. Hmm. And if they were uh, not grounded going into the experience, the experience could really untether them even more. That's uh, interesting. I was at an event uh, a few months ago and somebody came up and introduced themselves and they were really into DMT, like really into DMT. And from the two minute conversation I had with this person, I turned to Carlos and said, you know, he's probably somebody who should put down the DMT pen for a little while. <laughs> there was no grounding there. Yeah. Uh, but most people, if they are getting to the point where they're ready to say yes for a retreat, or yes to the mushrooms, most of them is ready. Yeah. 80%. Uh, you know, Carlos, who is a very, very gifted facilitator, he's been guiding people for 30 years, 30 plus years now. Uh, both he and I have been coaching people for, well, since 2010, uh, professionally. Uh, so we have a tremendous amount of experience between the two of us in navigating various altered states, not ordinary states of consciousness right. uh, and also uh, handling things that can happen during those non-ordinary states of consciousness. Uh, the, you know, the going up to the woods, going up to the cabin for the weekend and taking some mushrooms to party with your friends. Again, this is a dosing thing. This is very different from what we do on a retreat uh, that you're likely going to be taking a lower dose because if you take a higher dose, it's not going to be as fun. Yeah. Right. You're going to lose a, a lot of the things about taking a lower dose that people enjoy. You're going to get a very different experience. But when you come on retreat, you're taking high doses. We start most retreats. Uh, we do, uh, we work with two medicines. Uh, one of those medicines are mushrooms and we do two journeys with the mushrooms. And then we do a, a third journey with a separate medicine. Those journeys start at a high dose. They most of the time start at four grams and go up from there. So these are substantial doses. These are doses that are known to create mystical experiences. So if you look at like the Johns Hopkins research, all the research that says uh, magic mushrooms create mystical experiences, we're dosing at the same level. That is very, very different from kind of the party atmosphere. 
and it also requires a deeper level of commitment and um, a deeper understanding of the sacredness of the substance. So we do a lot of ritual work around it to create the safe container for that experience. Carlos is uh, comes from an extensive background in ritual magic. I come from a background of Peruvian magic. Uh, so we integrate those to create the container for a spiritually nourishing and safe experience at those doses. Uh, this is also, uh, we drive home the point of, this is a sacred space and sacred time. Yeah, we're gonna share stuff. We're gonna laugh. We're gonna have a good time. And, and the purpose of all of those things, even things that seem kind of superficial, it has a deeper meaning. It has a deeper purpose in the medicine space that we're creating. Um, we also, we have three ceremonies, but they're separated with a day off in between each ceremony so that people have time for integration practices. We do meditation work together. We do breath work together. We do ritual together. We do coaching, uh, which you don't necessarily get at a lot of these other type of experiences that are like a weekend event in the U.S. where it's like one ceremony, uh, two nights, and then you're gone. These are uh, eight-day experiences. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know at the beginning of this interview, I, I mentioned cracking into the specific nuances of what a psychedelic experience was versus a hypnotic trance experience or just any kind of uh, mind technology healing practice that doesn't use the drugs. Um, so I guess I wonder... And I'm curious your take on this. You know, one of the things that blew up my worldview is the work of Dr. David Hawkins. Now, I know there's there's like a kind of controversy about him out there. I know it's not 100% validated, but but here's what I'll say. So this guy's talking about the, this idea that, you know, rather than needing to stay in the realm of the mind, if you can surrender your ailments or surrender um you know the 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 anxiety or whatever it is to this higher power this is what the the mystics have done for ages and ages it's 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 it goes a step beyond even transpersonal therapy it's 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 the true you know one with source this kind of thing that is like i, I would argue an acceler a, a huge accelerator to being a self-actualized person. Um, and I notice on the website you say this isn't a clinical experience. This is a spiritual experience. Um, I've heard people say before when they got in touch with spirit, all the little things that were bothering them in their heads, their problems just kind of disappeared. What is your take? How would you, for the hypnotists out there, for the people that are very invested in, you know, uh, okay, what's this thing that's going to clear this unconscious block and then it's going to give them more awareness so it expands their map of the world and now they have more choice and all this stuff, which is, again, I, I think you're not dismissing that stuff. I love all that stuff. We love all that stuff. Um, but how would you explain spirituality working as a means of that process so that you can just skyrocket where you are as opposed to clinically addressing each and every issue. Sure. 
and you're right. I, I still love it. My my day to day work is hypnosis and coaching. We can't do psychedelics every day. Physi- physically, we can't do it. Uh, so the bulk of my work is still coaching and hypnosis. So we love that stuff. Uh, for the NLPers and the hypnotists in the room, I'll invite you to think about it in terms of logical levels, right? So you know we have the physical reality, we have behaviors, we have thoughts, we have emotions, we have our complex equivalences and our cause effect relationships, we have our identity. Spirituality is beyond identity. So you are chunking up and outside of neurological levels. Uh, For those of you familiar with the tree of life, you are going to the top two points of the tree of life. Uh, You are moving beyond the limitations of self. How can that not create change and how can that not skyrocket change? Because you're pulling the person out of the boxes they've created for themselves. You've pulled them out of their conditioned patterns. You have pulled them into an experience of consciousness that when you are in that state, looking back at the self, the self becomes limited and confining. How can you come back from that type of experience holding on to the same limitations and problems? You can't. It, it is impossible. It doesn't mean that the problem will change instantly, but some aspect of it will. The problem will not remain the same. You know, even with psychedelics, Uh, There are some, you know, there's some issues that like I'm still working on. I have something right now that I've had like seven journeys on that, you know, I'm still working through because it requires uh, more delicate handling. It requires more time. Uh, So this is not like a one shot fix all type thing. But when you start to integrate spirituality, whatever that means for your clients into their practice for like 90% of your clients, you're inviting in a part of themselves that is already there, especially in the US. US is one of the most religious countries in the world, uh, just statistically, like if you look at pure, uh, Pew research and stuff like that. So you're bringing what they're already doing into the therapy session, which is really important. For people who aren't that way, you're offering an invitation for them to experience something that they haven't experienced before. They don't have to have a rigidity of belief around it. We're not saying you have to believe in God or gods or angels or whatever. Uh, that's not what spirituality is. Spirituality at its core, at least for me, is connecting to something that's bigger than identity and opening the doors and limitations and blocks that have been self-imposed or societally imposed. So on the basic level, you're you're, you're chunking up. You're you're going well beyond the logical levels to to create this massive top-down change. That is such a good explanation. It makes me wonder, but before we wrap here, I, I kind of want to go into the the explorer side of your work. Um, have you been able, how have you been able, I'll, I'll presuppose this, though maybe, maybe you haven't, I don't know. Um, how have you been able to bring the exploratory, quote-unquote, intelligent hypnotist edge to something that, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it's a spiritual, sometimes... I I guess I'm curious, you know, are you... Have you found it different in terms of developing new tools and 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 different kinds of... um, You know, I I imagine sacred medicine, yes, there is a ritual to it, but why couldn't it evolve? Why couldn't we discover new ways of engaging with it? As a matter of fact, I feel like we're, we're due for that in general as... All we are is changing. Um, so I, I guess I'm curious, you know, is there, uh, 
yeah, will you be <laughs> performing? Or can, can you teach? Do, have you found different angles to it that go beyond where you are now? Are you excited for that? Or, or does it not need that at all? What do you, uh, what do you make of that? Could you ask it in a slightly different way? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out this question. I mean, how many books do you got in you about this? <laughs> about this, in terms of way different ways you can facilitate experiences right. with medicine and different experiences that might be open to us in the way that you did with NLP and hypnosis. Okay, so there will always be ritual. There can't not be. What that ritual is depends on the context. So like in our website, when we say we're not a clinical setting, uh, when you do psychedelics in a clinical setting, like if you go to Johns Hopkins or NYU or Columbia or UCLA, uh, you're going to be in a room that's, you know, nicely appointed, but it's in a hospital. You're going to have a blood pressure cuff on. You're going to have two facilitators with you who do not take the medicine with you and who do not give you a tremendous amount of input or feedback. They'll hold your hand. They'll help you to the bathroom but you also don't go outside. It's very structured and it has to be that way because they're doing research. So they need a standardized process to ensure or to control for independent variables. Unfortunately, what has evolved from that is people who are now getting into psychedelics because of that research think that that is the way to do it. Uh, that is not the only way to do it. That is one ritual for doing it. Uh, our ritual pulls a lot on our, our magical traditions. And that also means that we do a more ancient practice where we dose with the people who are attending, because if you don't, you run the risk of triggering a lot of social anxiety. Uh, you can run the risk of people saying when they're going through something difficult, oh, you don't understand, you're not here with me. Uh, people can feel very judged. Uh, and there's also just basic social circuitry in the brain that gets triggered and amplified when one journeys that is further complicated if somebody isn't in that shared space. Uh, so that is a part of our ritual. Other communities will have different rituals. Uh, if you go and do ayahuasca in the Amazon, it's gonna be very different than doing ayahuasca in a, an apartment in Brooklyn. Even if they're trying to reproduce some of the ritual, it's just not gonna be the same, it can't be. Uh, so people find rituals and approaches that work for them. For us, there are some key things. We use ritual to call in our absolute best qualities because you need that going into a into ceremony. We use ritual to set an energetic barrier. So, you know, you don't have stuff coming in that you don't want. Uh, we do it to create the right emotional context, the right metaphoric context so that people can make sense of the journey that they've had before and also make sense of what's about to happen. Now, what you do within the journey, which is also kind of a part of this larger ceremony that contains many rituals, varies. So for us in our retreats, uh, the first journey we do is with uh, phenethylamine, which is either going to be um, mescaline or MDMA. The last retreat was mescaline. This time will be MDMA, mescaline in the form of Wachuma. That's a more subtle psychedelic uh, that's very embodied. That is uh, in, called an intactogen because physical touch becomes really amazing. Um, and we do group activities together, structured activities to help facilitate the heart opening that those substances encourage. In the first mushroom ceremony, there is a lot more time to just explore on your own, to wear the eye mask, to do your own inner journeys, uh, to see where that takes you. 
There might be some group sharing that happens. We share some fruit later on in the journey. Uh, some people will need some coaching very often at certain points, and we're there to help facilitate that and to hold hands and that sort of thing. Some people want to go watch the sunset and step outside. That's fine, too. Then depending on the group and what the group needs, because each group is different, the third journey, we may do a more structured journey to build psychedelic skill sets because we want to leave, the, leave our retreats feeling confident that if they want to journey on their own, you know, in, an, in a reasonable environment with a reasonable amount of mushrooms, they feel confident that they're able to do that safely. So we take that third journey. There is time to, to heal and explore, and there's a lot of time for that. But we also structure it so that they start to gain some control over their experience uh, so they can decide, you know, is this a path I want to go down? The mushrooms are showing me this. Do I want to go down this or no? You know, the first journey is very overwhelming and you don't get a lot of choice. The mushrooms are going to take you where the mushrooms take you. But with practice, you develop a skill of being able to navigate that. You know, we, we've had people say to us, well, if you take mushrooms, when it, we're all taking mushrooms, you know, who's watching us? Who's taking care of it? If you're going through your own stuff, you know, what about us? Well, we've developed the skill to go, okay, this is not my time for my stuff. This is about what's happening here. We developed the skill to navigate that inner and outer space. So the last journey, when it's appropriate, it's not always appropriate, not for every group, but when it is, there's some more structured activity to help facilitate that. Um, and again, like I said, it depends on the needs of the group. In terms of like developing things with the medicine, I would love to long-term. And I think that's kind of a long-term goal is, you know, what can we do with this? How far can we take it? What, uh, what happens when we integrate family constellation work with a high dose of mushrooms or we integrate, um, you know, I, I, things like formal hypnosis and even state-based coaching, the HNLP stuff, you don't really need to do a lot of that in ceremony because the mushrooms are there. And we're also very mindful that we don't want to steal anybody's thunder. We want to help build skill sets, but we also want people to develop their individual relationship with the medicine. It is not about us doing things to create change for people. Our job is to do that after the ceremonies to help land the change. But in ceremony, it's the relationship between the person and the mushrooms. And I 100% believe that mushrooms have intelligence. Um, you know, when I journey, they they speak to me a lot. We have very lengthy conversations about the mysteries of the world. Um, I, I think that us being in the space, Carlos and I, to be in service to the mushrooms and to be in service to the explorers, the people there with us, that is our, our main job. And that's what's most important. And whether or not some sort of training or some sort of book comes out of that leader, maybe. I You know, it is always an interest of me because you know how I think. However, there isn't a compulsion for that. There isn't a need for that. If that evolves, great. If it doesn't, great. We're still doing the soul's work. Yes. Yeah. I mean, certain ideas just came to me, some sort of, uh, you know, I guess I wonder, is there, and again, this is someone who has never done this before, but, but, you know, kind of the bigger promises of NLP, this idea of of modeling genius or or having access to, uh, you know, abilities that you want to model from somebody else that that maybe you have it before. I mean, it makes me wonder, you know, do people ever have trips and all of a sudden a new 
relationship with the creative muses is activated somehow and can you can you you know guide that for people so everybody walks away like maybe a little more artistic or a little more you know they just have a they just have a different uh perspective that's a lot easier to access a lot quicker than maybe the stuff that would take a little longer to develop uh i don't know if you've seen any of that or or have experienced any of that there was a, a study, um, I, th I think it was back in the 70s, and the researchers invited 48 scientists to participate. And the, the prerequisite was that they had to have some scientific or some mathematical problem that they were not able to solve. Like something big, it had to be meaningful and they have not been able to solve it. Uh, they dosed the people with LSD and something like 47 out of the 48 experiments had their resolution. So, yeah, it opens creativity. <laughs> <laughs> that is that. I mean, I haven't heard any better selling point than that so far. So that is, I mean, hey, folks, everybody, yeah. you got to check out sacredmedicinejourneys.com. The work of Jess Marion at theintelligenthypnotist.com. And if you want to get in on the journeys, get that, get on the newsletter and whatnot, just email team at sacredmedicinejourneys.com um look i know uh you know we, we we did this episode a year and a half ago uh if if you're thinking back as to, i i don't know how much you're you're uh you know you're consciously aware of everything because how can you be aware of everything you were thinking at a certain time at that point though if there's anybody that could i bet it would be you uh that said is there any other thing that we need to clear the record on is there any other sense of i mean i feel like we definitely you're you're stepping into this area um is the evolution but but uh for people that are like nah give me the intelligent hypnotist jess marion what happened to that woman what do you want to say to those people is there anything else you need to say um psychedelics are super intelligent now um <laughs> <laughs> yes I, yeah, like I, said, you know, I still my my nine to five my day to day is client work it's client work it's training uh this is just um for me psychedelics sacred medicine is the shortcut to like all the stuff that i wanted for my own personal transformation and when i compare hypnosis to what is possible in the psychedelic space there is no comparison with that said psychedelics are not appropriate for everybody they're not ideal for everybody or at all times uh, and there are risks uh, you know physical risks legal risks that sort of thing that we need to be mindful of uh, so there's always a place for hypnosis and NLP. Uh, and, you know, I don't see any of this stuff as being in competition. They complement each other. And I find, honestly, in my coaching that my psychedelic work has had actually a much greater influence on my coaching and hypnosis work than my coaching and hypnosis work have had on my psychedelic work, if I'm fully honest. Uh, because, again, you're chunking up to something much bigger than identity and much more yeah. profound. Um, so... You know, the intelligent hypnotist, Jess and Sarah and Sean, we are still here. Uh, this is just another branch, another evolution, another fractal for my psychonauts out there of me, of us. Yes. Well, I'm so glad you shared that today. Jess Marion, thank you again for coming on. This is amazing. I'm very curious. Look, we're going to put this out sooner, but, but another year and a half, I'm curious where you'll be. 
Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, thank you again for coming on. This is great. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And I'm glad we were able to, to do this and to chat about something that I'm so incredibly passionate about. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Anytime. Jess Marion, thank you for two amazing episodes. Uh, yes, this was a good trip. And if you're skeptical about the sacred medicine, psychedelic stuff, how do you think the cavemen invented the wheel? They were absolutely overdosing on Flintstone vitamins. Come on. I want to thank Rodney McGilfrey for the theme music. I want to thank Zero Boy for the pre-theme music. If you like this show, listen, like, subscribe. I want to hear your words. Remember to leave a little mushroom emoji in your review. I love you so much. Talk soon.